This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello all, this is Patrick Prince, editor of Goldmine Magazine, the music collector's magazine since 1974, and also our website, goldminemag.com. Welcome back to the Goldmine Podcast, a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, also known as the MTV of Podcasting. This episode will be a real treat for record collectors specifically. Uh, we, have, we will have a talk with creators of the film documentary Vinyl Nation, and that would be Kevin Smokler and Christopher Boone. The documentary, Vinyl Nation, was filmed pre-COVID. And the documentary is a dig into the resurgence of vinyl records. Um, also the diversification of vinyl fans and uh, what this all means for America today. Um, the discussion with Christopher and Kevin will get into vinyl pretty in depth. And what went into making of the the making of this film through record stores, record shows, record pressing plants, uh, record collector testimonials, record store events, um, and a lot more. Also, how this was all affected by COVID, and what happened on April eighteenth um, and nineteenth of this year, on what would have been record store days weekend, uh, Vinyl Nation's directors and producers. Uh, that would be Kevin and Christopher. They partnered with Record Store Day and 200 independent record stores in about 46 states. They offered the movie digitally for one weekend, and 100% of the proceeds uh, went to record stores. Uh, the weekend event raised 37000 for independent record stores uh, and their, their struggle to stay in business during this pandemic. And so Vinyl Nation has not been available to the public in any form since that special Record Store Day one weekend uh, fundraising event uh, until the film's official virtual cinema release uh, this Friday, Friday, August 28th, uh, which was one day before the first of three Record Store Day drops. These drops, of course, as you know, will hopefully bring customers back to record stores safely for exclusive vinyl releases and such. Um... But after this podcast, you can go to VinylNationFilm.com and check out how you can see this film. And trust me, for record collectors, it's worth it. It gets, like I said, in-depth. And as record collectors know, um, collecting is very complex, uh, beautifully complex. And uh, the record collector is very passionate. So we could have gone hours upon hours talking about our love for record collecting, but um, we get to pretty much the meat of the matter, and uh, they talk about, uh, obviously, Vinyl Nation, as the title suggests, how record collecting is specifically in America. Uh, 
In the meantime, let's get the conversation going about all things vinyl and how Vinyl Nation, the movie, covers all of it as we'll talk to both Kevin Smokler and Christopher Boone on the phone. Hey, Beth, it's Chris Boone with Vinyl Nation. How are you? Hey, Chris. Kevin, are you with us? Yes, I am. Hi, guys. Hey, Pat, thanks for talking to us. Congratulations on finishing everything up, but I assume it was last year you finished up production, right? Uh, we finished in February. Wow, um, so... And then we were just... <laughs> yeah, we finished shooting last year, but yeah, we finished all of the post-production February this year. So you finished everything right before this pandemic hit, which is pretty... Um, yeah. I don't know if you want to call, you could either call that lucky or not lucky. I don't know which one you wanted. <laughs> it definitely changed all of our plans. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. It made for a very interesting release story to date. So Maybe each one of you can explain your backgrounds and uh, how this came to be, how this project came to be. Maybe you could talk a little bit how maybe you are record collectors yourselves and what you collect, etc. Yeah, sure. Um, this is Kevin. Um, the, uh, the idea the idea started with me. Um, I have, uh, I'm, I'm 47, and I, to date, other than records, have never been on time for a trend in my entire life. Um, I just happen to be a little too young to have caught the record bug the first time around. I was more of the cassette tape generation. Mm. And then at about 2007, uh, I was at a dinner party and someone put a record on and I just thought it was the most charming thing I'd ever heard and it sounded magnificent. And so I asked him, uh, how, you know, what are you doing being into records in, in 2007 because he was my age. And he said, he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, you know, I'm about to sell my turntable. I'll take you to buy some used audio gear if you want to, if you want to get a, a, you know, a deck and some speakers and, a, and an amplifier set up. And I'll take you used record shopping over in Oakland. And I thought, well, that sounded like fun. And um, and that was 2007. And little did I know that I was at the beginning of the you know the the now 14 year comeback of, of vinyl records. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been trying to kind of make sense not of why it happened because I think there's been plenty of conversation of why it happened, but what its comeback meant for a long time now. Um, and then in my day job, I, I write books about pop culture. And while I was on tour for um, uh, my last book, uh, which was about 80s teen movies, I got back in touch with Chris. Chris and I went to college together, and um, and he booked me. Uh, Chris is a filmmaker based in Albuquerque, and he booked me to um, for a couple of screenings in Albuquerque where we would watch a movie from that time and then talk about the talk about the movie afterwards and sell some books. Hmm. And in prep for doing so, I had seen some of uh, Chris's work as a filmmaker, and I really liked it. Uh, and we got to chatting about maybe doing something together. Um, and because I don't know how to do fiction, I said, well, if we made a movie, it would probably be a documentary. And this idea that's been weighing on me for a long time is why, uh, not only why did vinyl records come back, but what, what can we glean from that? What is the significance of that? And he sort of shrugged and said, I don't know, like, well, let's, let's, Give it a try. And, we, and in, in March of 2018, we just started talking on the phone once a week and seeing if we actually had something. And, mm-hmm. and because Chris has done this before and I haven't, he realized 
long before I did that we actually did have something and we have we would have to start being grown ups about it instead of just talking on the phone and about what a neat idea it was. Um, and that's really when it when it went from being a conversation to uh, a pre production on a film. Yeah, and I would say when Kevin brought the idea to me around that time, I had started collecting records around 2014, I guess, mm -hmm. so right in the middle of all of this. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm two years younger than Kevin, so mm -hmm. uh, when I was little, little, we, we definitely had some records around the house. Um, I remember putting on a 45 of Another Brick in the Wall, and then right after that, putting on a 45 of Summer Nights in Greece. And I don't know why, but that's just what I like to listen to. Um, but I never really had like a large record collection as a kid. It was basically a cassette era for me, and then CDs. So come 2014, uh, it was actually my wife that said, hey, let's get a turntable. And that was a big mistake, because I had worked in a record store after college. And so as soon as I was given the green light to buy physical media again, um, I was all on board for that. But I also have a teenage daughter. Um, she's 17 now, but... Um, right around, right after we got our turntable, I'll say, uh, yeah, within about a year or two after that, sh we got her a Crossley turntable. And that was really important to me because I always wanted to give her music as a gift. And, uh, there was no good way to do that. You know, then it was iTunes and then after that, now Spotify. And it's just, when you have everything at your, on your phone, it's like, how can I give you music as a gift? Cause, and then as soon as the turntable arrived, now we can give her albums, you know, both, you know, artists that she's really into, but then somebody that I think, like, I think you'll really dig this. It's just, it's just something, you know, that I, that I like in your age. So, um, that's been really nice to, to connect with her on that wavelength. Of course, she listens to most of her stuff on Spotify. Um, but, uh, she's definitely down with the records and we just upgraded her turntable for the most recent birthday she had. Um, so that's been a nice way to connect. And, and, and that's something that we discovered early in our research process that, yeah. um, we wanted to talk to record collectors of all kinds. Uh, right. People who have been collecting records for decades, um, people who are new to this, parents that are sharing vinyl with their kids, um, and just uh, like everyone under the sun, essentially, and, and to show that it, whatever stereotypes people might have in their mind about who collects records, um, that's pretty far from the truth now. Right. That's why I wanted to ask both you guys about your story, because you had excellent testimonials in, in your documentary. Did you watch other documentaries on vinyl or record stores? For instance, there's one on Tower Records called All Things Must Pass, yeah. The Rise and Fall of Tower Records. Have you, did you watch videos, uh, documentaries like that before you started out? Yeah, uh, several actually. Um, we both loved the Tower Records documentary, right. and someone from our someone from our movie, um, Billy Fields, the VP of All Things Vinyl at Warner Music, um, is uh, is in our movie and was was an employee of the original the original Tower in Sacramento. Right. Um, and so he he was kind of intimately. Uh, I don't know if he's in, I don't think he's in All Things Must Pass, mm -hmm. but he was part of the group of the original employees who were invited to a lot of the events when that movie came out. Um, we also watched a, a UK movie called Last Record Shop Standing, which was which was sort of about the the rise, fall, and return of record stores in the UK. Um, and we got a lot of really good wisdom on how to film in a record store for them mm. because if, if, if you don't film a record store right, it just looks like it just looks like piles of cardboard stretching off into infinity, and it really fails to capture the wonder and beauty of what it's like to be inside a record store. Right. Um, so that was really important to us as well. 
Um, and uh, I think it was what we wanted to make sure our movie was saying, and we thought both of those movies did a brilliant job of it, is, is vinyl is vinyl coming back is, 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 is a thing we should all be jumping up and down and celebrating about. Right. Uh, I mean, we can we can talk about how it was sad that it that it that it did not that it was no longer the dominant music form, but this fundamentally is a very happy story. So yes. we wanted to um, we wanted to make sure that was the that was the, the that sense of joy that, that that everybody feels when they pull something out of a crate that they've been looking for for six months or a year or or some complete stranger across the record store says, "Do you absolutely have to have that?" Like that's that's how we wanted our movie to feel. Oh yeah, tangible was really. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, I was just going to say something that then was really fascinating was, um, and it, so we had done watched those films and done a lot of research and then done a lot of primary research talking with people. And then, as you mentioned, this year we finished everything in February of this year, and then the pandemic hit and it flipped everything on its head, and yeah. including our our desire to screen at festivals, do a summer road show, and, and maybe have a more traditional uh, theatrical, limited theatrical release in art house right. cinemas here in the fall. And um, so we then reached out to Record Store Day, the organization, to say, hey, could we partner with you and go out to record stores and let's do a one-weekend screening of our film that no one's actually been able to see yet, and we'll let record stores keep 100% of the proceeds. And that went really, really well. We partnered with 200 record stores. Collectively, they raised $37,000 for themselves. But what was really cool about it was we were completely unaware of the documentary Other Music and the other documentary Record Safari until at that same moment they basically had very similar ideas of, hey, <laughs> why don't we partner with record stores and release our movies right around what would have been Record Store Day weekend. <laughs> so it was nice to be in their company on that particular weekend when a lot of record store customers were hungering for connection right. and couldn't get to their record stores and to kind of be a part of this uh, trio unexpectedly um, was super cool, and so um, again, we had no—I I had no idea about those documentaries while they were in the works. We didn't catch wind of them uh, when they may have been in their festival runs because we were too busy making our own film. Um, right. So it just kind of, you know, happenstance that we all crossed paths when we did. Well, what I really like about Vinyl Nation, your documentary, is that you show the complexity of collecting vinyl records, meaning it's not just going to a record store. You know, there are record shows, there's the equipment like the turntable that you need to buy and understand. It's the vinyl record itself. Uh, the reason why people buy vinyl and how obsessed they become and also the way they store it or organize it. I mean, there's so many facets to it. I mean, I know this because... You know, I, I'm the editor at Goldmine, but I don't think a lot of people understand that. You know what I mean? They don't understand the communal nature of a record store or a record show. What is a record show? A lot of people don't understand what a record show is, that it's much like, you know, baseball card shows. Um, there, there's so much to understand about the community of vinyl records, and you do a great job. You even go to the pressing plants and you show how records are made. Uh, you go into the history. So I, I loved every aspect of the documentary. I have to hats off to that. And was that a oh, your original? Okay. Was that oh, a, your original vision? I, I think we knew we had kind of backed ourselves into a corner when 
Vinyl Nation was kind of the first name we came up with. And right. Neither of us were like, oh, well, that's got to be the name. It's perfect. We can't, we can't ever change that. Like, right. we, we come up with the name, and, and then we didn't have anything better. And then we both kind of had a, a real honest conversation with each other. We're like, man, we're really, like, we can't, like, we can't, there, there's no, there's no shortcuts here. When, when you throw the name Nation, and the only shortcut is, we we set it up so we don't have to go filming in Japan or something because we can't afford to do that. So right. we can actually keep it just to filming in the U.S., which will save us some money. Yes. Um, but we knew we knew we were we were going to get killed in, in in the court of public opinion if we called the movie Vinyl Nation and we filmed in you know New York, Los Angeles, Nashville, and Austin. Like, yes. You know places where it was really easy to find to find people who love right. records and a record and musical ecosystem. Um, so filming, ca capturing and covering as much of that word nation as we could was really important to us. And, mm. and also, like, we weren't going to be able to make a convincing argument that vinyl was back in a really definitive way for people who didn't know that. Mm. If we only went to places with, if we only went to places that were known for their musical cultures anyway, right? Um, that would be like saying that would be like saying vintage cars are back and only going to the Detroit Auto Show. Like, exactly. I mean, like that's, that's it's, just not, it's not a convincing argument, and so it was really important for us to find someone um, in a place like Merritt Island, Florida, or to go to the QRP factory in the middle of Kansas um, mm -hmm. to demonstrate just how pervasive and thorough that the um vinyls return had been also if you um, covered japan even, if you covered japan yeah. you would need a two-hour movie just for that <laughs> yep. sure. So. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but um, also to, i did want to also jump in like to, to your earlier point um so yes we did plan on including all those facets but and as you said there's a lot of complexity when it comes to records and record collecting mm -hmm. but i think it was it was our intention to show that it's extremely accessible to get into collecting records yes and i think it's stated throughout the documentary but we really have morgan rhodes at the very end right before our face montage um say it the best like don't be intimidated mm -hmm. like this is this is something like for everyone, you know, and if you want to yes. buy that best of the eighties, go on and get the best of the eighties. <laughs> that might change your right. life. And it's true. It's just like, it, this is, it is for everyone. And I think we really wanted to dispel that myth that no, only, only like serious collectors have been doing this for right. decades are allowed in to these record stores, to these record shows. And it was great to go into the record stores and go to the record shows and to hear how things have changed, how those environments have changed. It's really important to us to mm. go to a record store owned by a woman, go to another record store owned by a woman, like, and say, like, it's, it's not what you may think it is if you haven't been collecting records and, like, opening the door. That's also why it was really important for us to go talk to Urban Outfitters, to talk with Crossley. Like, they, they are really important in mm. the story of getting young female fans right. into records, and they can't be dismissed or ignored. So we wanted the fact to make sure we, we included all that in there. And so there is something for everyone, hopefully, to relate to, and yet at the same time, we think and we hope that our audience can relate to everyone in the film. Our editor, one of the first things that one of our editors, uh, Jason Whaling, said to us when he was going through all the footage was, I think if you put all the people that you interviewed in one room, even though they wouldn't know each other, they'd all become fast friends. It's right. pretty obvious. <laughs> um, and it's because they love records, but even though they're all incredibly different from one another. 
They're incredibly diverse, and that's one of the reasons also that I like this documentary so much is because the common thing for people who aren't record collectors think, you know, they're mostly made up of people living in the past, middle-aged white guys, um, you know, collecting classic rock or Beatles or Elvis. Sure, that's that's a large part of it, but now it's made up of all walks of life. You did a good job. You may have kept it to just America for reasons why you just explained, but you showed how diverse record collectors are. I mean, it crosses every generation. It doesn't matter um, how old you are, how you grew up, uh, what ethnicity. You could be a hardcore obsessed record collector, and you're not just collecting the Beatles, and you're not over 60, so... Yeah, it was, I mean, we had people like David Katz-Nelson, who was a, a local a local music executive and producer here in the Bay Area, who had, you know, a house in the Marin Hills with hundreds and thousands of records spread out over, you know, a half a dozen rooms. And then we had Ellie Fessler, who was a 20-year-old Pratt Art student from, from, right. from originally from Phoenix, Arizona, who had, you know, who had 10 records in a, in, in a, in a milk crate under her bed. Um and the dedication of those two people to music um, is equal. Um, that one of them, one of them, just has 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 has, has different square footage to put it in. Well, the you know the DJs in the hip hop community did a lot to save vinyl records. While everyone was trading in their vinyl, as you as you show in the late eighties and early nineties, they were bringing them to record stores. Um, the DJs and hip hop community were buying those records for cheap and sampling them or playing them. And they had a, they really did save vinyl during that period. Besides, uh, you know, the guys I just talked about who still had vinyl. Yeah, we we obviously didn't have enough time to go super deep on that point. Yeah, but and, you did cover. As I mentioned earlier, yeah, we wanted we 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 felt like. The story about the revival happening had been told many times in magazine articles and there right. documentaries. And there are great documentaries about DJs like, like Scratch from like 2004. Right. And so we realized, okay, that's, that DJs was definitely a part of what we wanted to cover. But to your point, we wanted to include it both a little bit in the history lesson to make sure that everybody understood exactly what you said, that without DJs, keeping it going vinyl really could have just kind of gone away except for the people that just had their collections and it would have stopped being made um and then we do want did want to circle back and kind of show a, a combination of you know you got Cutmaster kurt in our film who's been a dj for for a long time and produced a lot of remixes from major hip-hop artists Right. We really also wanted to show women who have gotten into DJing, uh, like Lashie and Craig Baum, and then especially uh, Claudia Science, who, who started Chili the Vinyl Club and now has seven chapters around the country and, and specifically has uh, taught and helped other women learn how to DJ. And then they've gone on and teach other people to DJ. Plus, they've kept cultural music alive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that their parents and their grandparents had shared with them exactly and bring that out to their yeah. DJ set. So just the way we might think of DJing also has morphed and changed and grown and become more inclusive. Um, and I, I just found all those stories really fascinating. 
And mm-hmm. it's challenging to get all that information as well as I everything know. else into a 92-minute documentary. And <laughs> so definitely stories that landed on the cutting room floor. Um, but I still think we ultimately captured the essence of each of those elements that we wanted to related related the DJs. I mean, if you talk to DJs, they you know, and they've I mean, they've sampled so much that they they know as much as anybody who's into classic rock or funk or soul from the sixties and seventies because they sample that stuff. They're going for the obscure. They're digging. They're crate diggers. But I also yeah. thought it was great how you got these testimonials. How did you organize getting these testimonials from record collectors? Uh, people inside the record industry, obviously, they're easier to get. But you got good testimonials from record collectors. The, they were very passionate and interesting. Uh, we originally, everybody who we came across, we talked to on the phone before we before we filmed them. Because we knew that, that once we, we chose to go to them and film them, we were pot committed and we would have to we would be you know spending a certain amount of money shooting and on crew and 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 everything that goes into a day on a film set so we had to make sure we had to make sure that person's passion was clear to us on Mm -hmm. the phone when we talked to them Mm -hmm. um and also like that they had something they had something to say you know we didn't want to interview we didn't want to interview six pressing plant employees who all said the same thing or six label executives or six musicians who all said the same thing so we had kind of grouped everybody into different categories um, based on their relationship with records. You know, was this a was this a record store owner? Was this a, a musician? Was this a parent who had a who had a, a kid yes. who was into records? Was right. Um, and so, and so based on that, we we kind of we kind of figured out where everybody was, and then to to save money and time, we we scheduled our shoots around around these clusters of people. If everybody was in the San Francisco Bay Area where I was, we shot all of those our first week. Um, and and we and that was that was limiting in some ways, unfortunately, because if we met someone who was incredible and they and they and they lived in Anchorage, Alaska, we were we were we couldn't include them in the film because we couldn't make a special trip for one person to Anchorage, Alaska. Um, but the uh, yeah, that was kind of your. So it came down to it came down to how we could group people together, and did they say was their passion clear to us on the phone when we talked to them initially, mm. uh, and did they did they tell a different part of the story of vinyl than the other people we were talking to? Right. And, and in terms of actually finding them, uh, a lot of it came through started at least with social networks, and I would say most of it was came from Kevin's network. Kevin is a really extensive network and it's really interesting and it just basically put out calls on our networks to say, okay, let us know if you're big into records, but more importantly, like, can you reach out to your friends too that you know that are big into records and let them know that we'd like to talk with them. And so a lot of people were sending us names over the digital transom, like, oh, you got to talk to this person, you got to talk to that person. So that, that was a really fascinating way to make some really interesting connections. Um, Kevin also went to the Making Vinyl Conference, and so he met a lot of interesting folk there, and that definitely led to uh, a number of our visits to places like uh, Gold Rush Vinyl in, in Austin with Karen Kelleher. Um, I think that's initially where you met Billy Fields. And then through those connections, we were able to get to people like Ben Blackwell. Um, but then we also just started just reaching out, too. Like, again, mm. we knew we wanted to focus on, like I said, women who own record stores. So I poured through a list of record stores through articles that had been featured, and we just started reaching out to all of those 
women who own record stores and see if we could get them on the phone. And we talked to a number of them. And then, like Kevin said, it became part of the jigsaw puzzle of who can we actually get to and fit into our schedule and our budget. Um, and there were definitely some people that we wanted to interview that we just could not figure out how to get to their city and keep the whole schedule on board. So those were painful decisions to make. Um, entire cities got dropped at the final moment once we were trying to lock everything in. That also hurt. Um, but we felt really confident that we had, at least based on our initial phone calls, we thought we had a pretty diverse group of people. Then it was just a matter of getting them to actually open up on camera again. Um, and, uh, and then from there, see what we had. So a lot of planning, a lot of prep work, and then working with the editors to ultimately figure out what that story was. And we definitely relied heavily on them. Jason Rowling and David Fabella did an amazing job helping us pull this whole thing together. Yeah. You did yeah. a good job of showing children, too, taking interest in records. Uh, buying a Crosley, you know, uh, inexpensive, you know, turntable that could be, you know, remotely brought, you know, runs on batteries and brought outside or something. And they could play Disney records or something like that. And that's, you know, you can't underestimate how that connection between parent and child with records, um, it really works even in this day and age. You know, not all children. I, I think there's also a blowback with, you know, a generation growing up with, mp3s or even with uh, I, I think you showed this a little bit with ax, asking alexa to play music and uh, my alexa is <laughs> about to go off right now since i mentioned her name but uh, i think that <laughs> it shows that this ghost in the machine sometimes is is not as fun you feel like you know i need something tangible it was kind of like you explained about giving a gift right if you just give a gift mm -hmm. it says you know like a, a certificate oh you have 10 uh you could download 10 songs at apple music it's really not that exciting but if you gave a gift of a piece of vinyl with the artwork it's tangible you can open it up you can, you know, there's also so much going on in an album, whether it's liner notes, the inner sleeve, a lot of vinyl is sort of interactive. Um, there are box sets, which make really great gifts. Um, so, you know, I just thought about that, how the difference of having a tangible product now for the, you know, music industry rather than uh, something that is a ghost in the machine. I always use that term, you know, not because the police did, but it is very true. <laughs> it, was also, it was also super helpful when Kevin and I would have to travel all over the country and we would be on, we'd be traveling for a week and then we'd be home for a week and then traveling for a week and home for a week. Yeah. And man, it was great to be able to come home and give a record to my daughter and give a record to my wife and be like, right. thank you so much for everything you did while I was gone. Right, right. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know? So that that aspect right there, then and there was, you know, uh, made it all worth it. Other than you know, oh hey, I made a Spotify playlist for you. I hope you like it. <laughs> um, it doesn't trans doesn't translate the same way. Uh, now, Chris, I want you to talk about I want you to talk about how we framed everybody when we interviewed them because I that that was something you sort of came up with as as as, as a more experienced filmmaker than me, and I think it was important in conveying the physicality and the tangible beauty of records. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, we knew that we wanted to have two cameras on every interview just for ease of editing. Um, something that really 
the space itself hopefully told a story about the person, right. you know, how they laid, how they displayed their records. Um, where they put their turntable and the relationship to the room and the space um, was really important. And so um, it was always great to see, you know, um, we like you said, David Katz Nelson, he couldn't even put all his records out because he's got too many. They're down in the basement. But in his space, you know, he's got them down that low-lying shelf, and it's a nice long shot over to his turntable. And now he's got those bedroom. We can't see very many records because you can't bring in very many records because she's in a tiny Brooklyn apartment. But you can right. tell that her turntable is prominently displayed there up on her dresser. Um, and then Logan Melissa's got the iconic 5x5 Ikea shelf. Uh, right behind her that is right. great for all of your records and pulling out individual records and putting them up on display so when people uh, come over uh, you know so and, and then obviously coming out so her has that time 20 <laughs> and uh, that was only a sliver of his collection in his undisclosed location um, you know the rest are scattered about here and there and everywhere else um, so yeah that was uh, important to us that the space told the story of the person so if you were to pause the movie at any point in time you could have fun kind of checking out their space and seeing what it said about them as a, as a record collector and then all the spaces look different um and so uh, that was always fun as we went into each location uh, working with our dp sherry cock and 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 walking around and trying to figure out what ultimately would be the, the best look and sherry almost always was the one who would come up with it Every once in a while, it get really, really tricky. And Kevin can tell the story of how hard it was when we shot Ben Blackwell. Um, but ultimately, we <laughs> would find that shot. And, and I actually love every single composition that we ultimately came up with, even though some of them were incredibly hard to, to come up with. So do you want to sh quickly tell the story about how we had to shoot Ben Blackwell at Third Man Records? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Third Man, Third Man in Nashville is an amazingly beautiful space, but they don't let, they don't let photography in most of it. Um, and, and they had and they had told us that like like we, we, we knew we knew that we were not going to be able to just walk around willy nilly with our cameras once we got to Third Man. Um, we just figured we because Ben is the co-owner, we'd film him in his office or something like that. But the day we arrived, Ben was getting the door on his office replaced, and there was a guy with a giant drill standing there <laughs> uh, making an awful racket. So we're like, well, that's not going to happen. And so Ben's like, well, we can shoot in the studio or we can shoot in the studio control room. The studio, like a lot of the things at Third Man, if you've been to Third Man Nashville or Third Man Detroit, is, is sort of one deep, saturated color. Um, and we're like, well, we sort of promised ourselves we weren't going to shoot anybody against a blank wall or against, you know, in, in, a, in, on a, in a monochrome background. And so we're like, well, studio's not going to work. How about the control room? And Ben goes, sure, and walks us into the control room and... Calling it a room is an exaggeration. There was basically a stool and, you know, $25,000 worth of vintage gear stacked every which way. And there was basically room for Ben, who's six foot three or something, to sit down. And there was no room for us. <laughs> so like, but I will say, I will say, before you continue, I will say it did have that gorgeous record lathe. And because it was the studio control room for the blue room, which was the studio mm -hmm. thing, it had a window looking out into the blue room, which meant we had this really cool blue wash coming into the mm. room that we could encounter with yellow on the other side, which would pair really well with Third Man's color scheme. But that space, as Kevin will explain, was ridiculously tight. So, Kevin, how were we all situated in that room? So... 
we knew like we had to get the cameras in there first or else none of it was going to work. And so Sherry, Sherry spent about 40 minutes getting, or maybe like an hour getting the cameras set up. And this, our sound guy, thank God, was like, don't worry, I'll make it work. Uh, and we had essentially like, like perched him on a, on, on a stack of gear somewhere, like on his knees. He must have been in terrible pain that whole time because he was, he had the boom mic on one shoulder and he was, he was kneeling like he was like a ninja about to like attack someone walking by. And then, because I did all the interviews, they had to line me up with Ben's eyeline. And I'm 5'8", and Ben is 6'3", and so we slumped Ben Jones down in this chair. And in order to get me lined up, we took the empty camera and sound equipment cases and stacked them like a, like a set of Jenga blocks and perched me on top of it. Like a like like a crow sitting on a telephone wire, uh, and so in order to stay balanced, I had to have one foot on the floor and my knee up on the thing, and I was hugging my knee, and I had to basically be motionless in that position for about ninety minutes. All the while, Chris and our PA are in the next room, which was in the shot because we, when you see the part with Ben Blackwell, you could see the shot going down the hallway, and in order to keep them out of the shot, we basically had to like pin them to the wall with masking tape. Mm-hmm. So we were all standing there like mimes. <laughs> like, none of us could move in order, in order to get the shot in bed. No, seriously, at one point in time, it was, I shifted my weight at one point in time, and our DP said, Chris, I can see your shoulder. And I moved an inch, like, no line. Like, oh, sorry. <laughs> so I shifted my weight back to the other foot. It was super tight. But I'll say that is one of my favorite wide shots. Yeah. Uh, just because, actually, the space itself came alive, and... Um, the lathe is beautiful, and getting it was opening the door actually was what solved the problem for our DP Sherry. Once once she opened the door and then opened the door from the next room, and you could see all the way down, she's like, ah, I finally have that depth of perception, that, uh, uh, perspective that I really need. Um, and then she's like, okay, we're good to go. But yeah, she couldn't she couldn't escape from behind the kitten. Like it was it was yeah, it was a crazy interview, but it went really well. And thanks yeah. to Ben's a great interview. Yeah, yeah Ben. Yeah, Ben is the guy. To talk to, I think, even though a lot of people think of Jack White, of course, uh, when thinking of Third Man. Mm-hmm. But Ben runs the day-to-day operation, so he is the guy that will tell you everything you want to know about Third Man. So, yeah, I've I've interviewed mm-hmm. Ben, and uh, he, he is a very good interview. So he, he's a good representation of vinyl. We, we also wanted to keep, uh, early on we decided we were not going to chase celebrities for the movie. And yes. we wanted to kind of keep the film focused on people that you can relate to, right. people that you might know in your world, right. um, and let them tell their stories. So obviously we people in the industry like them, and they're well known within the industry, but, right. um, uh, and, you know, if you're, and if you're a fan of the Dirt Bombs, well, of course you know Ben Blackwell, but yes. um, most people know Jack White in relationship to the Third Man record. So... Uh, we said that wasn't that was a, cho- a distinctive choice that we actually made. And so, any of the celebrities that appear in our film, they're there just in fair used archival footage because they are important to the story. But it's right. not who we wanted to go after in terms of our interviews because that also can start to overwhelm your story. I think we would start to lean on those interviews more than everybody else's voices. Um, so that was. That was an early decision. I thought it was a good decision to start off at Record Store Day in the morning, I think it was 5.30 a.m., and see the passion of not just the consumer, but the record collector. 
to see them waiting on records just before record store day, before their record store opens, and not many people know about that. This will this is a good uh, inside look of everything because I've stood in that line and I've left it because <laughs> I could not. <laughs> I didn't care if there were food trucks. <laughs> I was cold. And, yeah. uh, you know, I yeah. was like, you know what? I'm just going to buy this record afterwards. Uh, not on eBay, but, you know, because the great thing about record stores is that uh, if one doesn't, if one sold out on it, um, another one would would possibly have it. And, you know, since I know people, I could just ask them to <laughs> send it to me possibly. Um, but, I, they are diehards, and there are a lot of them, and I'm, I get so happy to see that, not just because of what I do, but um, they're, they're willing to wait out there like it was a Led Zeppelin concert, and it's fantastic. Um, so you open up with that, and you show how they're waiting for the record store to open, and when they get out of the store, they're like kids at Christmas time, showing everything that they've bought. <laughs> displaying it they love it um so yeah and i think the fact that it, these uh pieces of vinyl are limited makes it even more exciting you know the thing is is that there are record store owners and uh, record collectors that look down on record store day because it's not old school it's new vinyl as opposed to used vinyl um but most of the people it, it has done i think record store day helped vinyl resurgence more than anything it's helped these people that are actually poo-pooing it that they should say maybe okay i don't like it but it has helped the community yeah i, I gotta say when i first found out about record store day which is probably 2010 or something like that there was the record store that i typically went to in san francisco didn't even bring in rsd products Right. They just like, hey, it's record store day. We're going to use it as an excuse to throw a big party. Right. And you'd go over there, and the whole store was decorated in streamers and balloons, and they were giving out, you know, hot dogs and beer and stuff like that. And they're like, and they would do really cool stuff, like, okay, this hour, any record that begins with L is twenty percent off. Right. And so you just hang out because you didn't know what was going to happen next. You mostly ended up buying used vinyl, which is what um, it's all so about, I, too. Yeah. <laughs> It's about that as well, yeah. yeah. But uh, I think they yeah, get. I think, I, mean, I think it's because of the eBay thing. People get see inflated prices, but yeah. that's not that. That's always going to happen with <laughs> in this <Yeah>. world. <laughs> it, it, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell in our scene and our opening scene at Record Store Day, and, and and I think Chris can speak to this too. But you know, we we showed up to film the line at five thirty. We were there until four in the afternoon. So right. a lot of the shots, particularly of the band, the band didn't start playing until after lunch. So there's there's about there's about eight or nine hours worth of time there compressed into like two and a half minutes. And we noticed that very different people very different kinds of people come to the store in the afternoon than the ones that line up for the brand new record store day stuff in the morning. Uh, a lot, I mean, yeah, there was definitely some kids in the line, but a lot of people come later with kids, you know, they come after lunch or something like that. They, and they just want to be like in the record store because it's a fun place to be. Right. Um, and they run into people they know and they run into neighbors and friends and the band and there's, there's music playing. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I, I think, I think record store, 
Record Store Day, when run by a good record store, really has something for everybody. I agree. Yeah, I completely agree. When we um, when we talked with Judy on the phone during pre-production, and we were trying to you know figure out where who we were going to talk to and, and shoot for the film, we got off the phone with her, and it was pretty apparent, sort of like after that call, that you know we've been talking about we wanted Record Store Day to open the film, and we talked about a couple different ways to do it. We're like maybe it's archival footage because we can't be everywhere at once. I've even thought like maybe do we hire like people all over the country just to shoot at different stores? That seems ridiculous. That doesn't seem like it's going to tell the story we want to. And then we talked with Judy, and we realized, oh my gosh, she goes all out for Record Store Day. Yep. Um, and and her store, Mills Record Company, only opened in 2013. But the whole reason she opened it was she could not find a record store in Kansas City that carried new vinyl. And when mm-hmm. she would ask for it, they kind of laughed. Exactly. And she was a long time. She had been in retail a long time, and said, "This is an opportunity." And so I'm just going to start my own store. And immediately it took off because. It wasn't just about new vinyl for her. Is what she says at the beginning of the movie. What does this say about quick, authentic connections? For right. her, it's about making friends. And all those people in line go to Mills Record Company, not only because Judy goes all out and orders everything on the list as mm. much as she can. So you know if you get there early, you're going to get anything that's on that list. It's going to be a Mills Record Company. But they also go because Judy's awesome. <laughs> She's so cool to talk to and hang out with, and she's got great recommendations, and her whole team takes their cues from her, and they were just so much fun to hang out with that day. We just had a blast. Um, And so, uh, yeah, but in addition to the new records, again, something that's not as noticeable in in the shot, because we keep kind of coming back to Mills throughout the film, you see little clips. Um, What they do is, at 10 a.m., you know, after the big hubbub has, has subsided, at 10 a.m., they, they reveal a whole rack of choice used vinyl that they've been holding back. Right. And so people come just for that, and they hover, and they wait, and they literally take a tarp off this huge rack that's got two sides, and everybody descends on it, and oh, starts flipping through it. And it's, it is. It's fantastic used vinyl. But also, all those shelves back there is a mix of new and used vinyl. So... Once people get their Record Store Day records, they just go back into the racks and keep shopping. And it was really funny for me. The rest of the crew finally took a break at 2, but I was still downloading footage in the back room. So I said, I'm going to hang back, and you guys go get coffee. And um, oh, my computer was turning away for a bit. I guess I'll go record shopping myself. <laughs> and it was amazing to me that 2 in the afternoon, there were still Record Store Day releases available on the box. So I went and I picked up the live Green Day album from Woodstock because I was there. And I was like, right. sweet, I can get this album. And there was the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse soundtrack that my daughter would love. But perfect, I got to get for her. And then I was like, oh, Record Store Day first, or Greta Van Fleet's first album. I was hoping they would put that out on vinyl. Awesome, you know. And then just kept shopping for records in, in the racks. And um, it was like, I can't believe, like, these are still available at two in the afternoon, you know, but that's just the way Judy does it. And every year it's, it's been bigger and bigger. So we just felt so much for her this year when Record Store Day didn't happen. Um, and uh, we were heartened to hear that after we did our special screening, uh, uh, that a lot of people started reaching out to their local record stores where they bought their tickets and right. they started buying records. And Judy was swamped for a whole week with online orders. Um, to get out the door after Record Store Day, what should have been Record Store Day weekend, and people watched the movie. So, um, it's just, and she's just good at what she does. So those are the those are the stores that we just love, and 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 it was fun to be able to condense that story down into just one 
store and just let mm. one store kind of stand in for everything else. Um, and, and it was a great way to start the movie. It's like, here's the party. Let's get excited about records. <laughs> Boom. Now let's tell the rest of the story. What was the other record store that just had started for like three months or something? I forgot the name of it. Uh, the woman owned it. Um, do you remember that one? Mm. That's that Harris Brass Records. You want to talk about that one, Kevin? Sure. Um, Harris Brass we found. Um, Harris Brass we found because the owner, Cat Peach, um, is a native Baltimorean, and and I, we, Chris and I went to college in Baltimore. I yeah. knew a bunch of people that I had gone to college with, and so she had gotten in touch with us and said, "We're a brand new record store, and we're around the corner from Soundgarden." And Chris and I knew in our research that Soundgarden, which we had gone to as college students in Baltimore in the '90s, every college student went to Soundgarden, um, you know, to buy to buy at that time cassettes and CDs. Um, but we also knew that Soundgarden was the birthplace of Record Store Day, and so we're like, wouldn't it be a cool contrast to show where Record Store Day began, mm-hmm. and then that the climate of vinyl is healthy enough that there's a brand new record store around the corner that's doing something completely different for Soundgarden, um, and. I mean, we got there for a really good day. We got there on a really good day for filming um, because it was Saturday and it was it was warm outside and there were customers in and out all day long. Um, the record store was small enough that, that that poor Chris and most of the crew had to had to kneel on the sidewalk with the gear um, <laughs> outside. Um, and oh, and it, well, it was warm, but then it threatened to rain. Like as soon as we started shooting. It looked like it could rain at any moment. And I'm mm. out there with my laptop and I'm sitting on the equipment <laughs> cases just like, please, please don't rain. Please don't rain. <laughs> I don't know who, uh, what, uh, you know, somehow it held off. We got really lucky. But yeah, yeah we got really lucky there. Yeah. Um, and so it was, we got there on a really good day and Kat has been a huge supporter of the movie. Um, the, the, the sad coda to that story is that, that, Hezbuff did not survive the pandemic. Um, uh, they um, they had moved they had moved to a, to a more favorable retail location with a better lease shortly after we had filmed there. So they were no longer in Salt Point. They were in a suburb of Baltimore called Catonsville. And then the pandemic um, they 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 business wise they couldn't survive the pandemic. That's so, too bad. Um, that's that, that's really sad. And mm-hmm. and. Um, and we, you know, they were part of our, they were part of our initial partner program. They, they're, um, they were, they were great friends to our movie. And, um, we, uh, we, 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 Chris and I have bought a ton of records from, from Hair's Breath since. Um, and, uh, and we hope they get another bite at that apple because they were, they were really, really good at it. I mean, the, the moment where someone walks in and asks Kat a question about, about an Elton John album. I saw that, uh, yeah. Those people were visiting. Yeah, those people were visiting from Philadelphia, and they had they had used the bathroom across the street, and then said, "Oh, look, a record store." Yes, and were in there the entire time they were filming. I think they spent two hundred and seventy dollars on records. They did, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. the way that about- the way the clerks and the owners help people now. You brought, you brought up a great point where you said the climate of vinyl is healthy now, because you know when I used to visit stores. I would have friends that wouldn't step into Bleak or Bob's because the guy was so nasty Mm -hmm. and he'd make fun of your purchases. Like, you know, if they were heavy metal Mm -hmm. or pop, you know, kind of like the scene in uh, the movie High Fidelity where Jack Black is making fun of someone Mm -hmm. who gets a Stevie Wonder pop record hit. Um, 
now it's completely different. <laughs> you don't have to be intimidated to go into a record store. You don't have to be a snob. You're not going to be addressed by snobs. People are totally open. They expect all kinds, all walks of life to walk in. And that's what I, that's the difference, I think, uh, that I love. I've always liked record stores because of what they were, but I, I I have to agree with that friend. Sometimes dealing with, you know, the the clerk, the snob, you know, if he didn't like what you were buying and you had to hear his comments, it was off-putting. But now you won't hear that, really. I, I've, I've yet to see in, in this sort of modern day of vinyl collecting uh, someone like that. Yeah, it's almost like it's weird if you walk into a record store now and somebody gives you attitude. Right. You're like, you're like, where have you, where have you been, man? Like, come on, like, like get with it. You know, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we, uh, Chris, I, I think like, like, remind the other record store we filmed at a bunch was was Park Avenue Records in in Orlando, Florida, and the owner Sandy Bittman had that great. What was that anecdote, Chris, about like teenagers like going on first dates at his record store now? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's not in the film, yeah, but he talked about it. It, it happens somewhat frequently now that teenagers come in on like on a date to go shopping for records. Um, and also, but I think he, I think this quote's in the film. He does also talk about you know we talked earlier about parents and and, and, and introducing violence to their kids, and he recognizes that it's just an important, as important for his store to carry the latest Taylor Swift album, right. you know, because if a young fan comes in and that's what they're looking for, he's a survey fan. And, and he's also told stories, again, this I don't think made his film, but he told the story, I think, about a young a young uh, boy that had come in. I can't remember the record. I think it actually might have been the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse yeah. album. No. I don't know if it was. It might have been, because we shot him after Record Store Day. I don't remember mm -hmm. that one specifically, but um, it was a young kid that had come in and bought the record and and his, I think his dad had like told Sandy like he listens to that thing every single day and also talks about like how fun it was to go to the store and, and pick out the records, like his record. Um, yeah, so he just recognizes like that that's the next generation um, and you yeah. gotta cater to them. This is, you gotta cater to the long term time collectors who I love it. you know, uh, are looking for, you know, whatever it is they're looking for perhaps in the youth section. Yeah. Um yeah, and Sandy's just great. He does a great job of balancing his new vinyl with his youth on it. His new vinyl section was absolutely choice because I was back <laughs> I was back in that section with my computer and it was like where they were, you know, labeling everything and I was just kinda like peeking through ooh, ooh, like, ooh, maybe I want to pick this up on the way out. So yeah. um yeah. Just, just understanding the, the the diversity of the of the customer base and, and exactly and being there for all of it. nowadays it's looked down upon if you critique someone for you, it's considered juvenile which it really was to critique someone on what they listened to and uh, actually the bleaker bobs in New York City is in a Seinfeld episode and he's and uh, he's portrayed as very <laughs> <Yeah>. nasty <laughs> so that just that was a really funny to me. That's the one that just like that's what I actually liked about the other music documentary right. um, was getting to know all the different clerks right. and uh, you know how they talk about some people are like gosh I'm going to need to go in there because you kind of really need to know because their knowledge was so deep yes uh, is so deep um, but it was just a matter of just knowing which was the right clerk to essentially talk to and like they said like sometimes you might catch me on a bad day <laughs> record <laughs> you know? store but day. It, you know, 
Record Store Day helped turn that around. I really believe that. They made the record store an even more friendly place, like a school of rock. If you want to be taught something, to be turned on to something, it's right there. You could listen to the record. Usually there's a listening station. Um, you know, I, I think they did a lot with turning it around. Um, but, but, and I also think these record store clerks just want to talk about records. So I think yes. what was interesting watching that documentary, and this isn't in my own personal experiences, I think if you ever feel like you're talking to somebody who works at a record store and you realize, whoa, they like they know a lot. The easiest thing I always say is, what do you recommend? Like, what should I be listening to right now? Right. That I probably have no idea about, and and let them lead me over to the rack, pull it out, and say, this is the record you need to listen to right now. And I ask them just why, and just let them shower me with the knowledge and the information. And then I can go, and it was something that I never would have looked for. So throughout this whole time we were shooting, if anyone ever offered us a record, um, they would say, like, what would you like? And I always turned it around on and said, nope, I'm too much in my own lane. I need you to introduce me to something I should be listening to now. And those are some of my favorite records right now. And I never would have found them, ever, ever, ever on my own. And it just opened me up to that idea of, let somebody else lead the way, and I'll learn so much more about what they're into and, and that style of music and that culture. Now, I also am glad that you um, covered record shows. Now, of course, it's different than the record store. And I think a, if you've noticed, there are record store owners that went out of business and they go on the record show circuit because they don't have to pay the real estate. And they just take crates of records to all these shows in the area. You picked out probably one of the best ones in Austin. Um, but they're, they're all across the country. Of course, they've been hit hard with the pandemic, but they'll be back like record stores. But I think it's an alternative for people who can't afford to, the real estate um, and the day-to-day -day upkeep of a record store uh, to go to these shows, it's it, it uh, it's their way of of selling and be surrounded by uh, a vinyl community. Yeah, it was really it was really cool being at the Austin Record Convention. We knew it was the biggest one, and it happened to be relatively close to where we were filming on that particular uh -huh. point in the shoot. Um, so so it was it was pretty easy for us to get there, and they were super easy to work with. And I I went to graduate school in Austin, so I kind of knew my way around, but. Um, and so, yeah, it, it just made sense. But like we were, we were, we kind of had a nose that there were probably record shows like it all over the country. And um, and uh, yeah, had we had we had more time, we would have gone to them. Um, and mm -hmm. we fully intend, like we fully intend for the efforts as part of the release of our movie. Um, we're partnering with we're partnering with all these different businesses in the music ecosystem, uh, including independent movie theaters, record stores, again, um, some live music venues, um, and basically saying, listen, if you want to sell tickets to our movie, we'll split the proceeds with you and you can keep half of them, um, uh, which is just a, a modification of what we did back in April. Um, but we, we feel like this is a really, really hard time for the music ecosystem that we have all benefited so much from. Yes. Um, and it's our way of giving back. If our, if our movie can, can, can help it help a little bit with everybody weathering this storm, uh, until we can emerge on the other side, we'll, we'll do it. And, and at the same time, it just gives us an opportunity to see how rich that system is. You know, we, you don't have to tell us that there's, there are great live music venues in Nashville or Detroit or Minneapolis, but when someone says like, 
God, you wouldn't believe how good the record stores are in Sioux City, South Dakota. We're like, bring it on, man. <laughs> like, we want to know that. <laughs> that's the kind. That's the kind. We, we get up in the morning to hear that kind of stuff. Like, so since we're on the subject, let's tell uh, the people that read Goldmine what they can do. Of course, this is a podcast, so there'll be listeners. But what they want to see this, they want to see Vinyl Nation, what they can do to see it. Maybe you can explain to them. Uh, I know you have a date, August 28th, correct, for a virtual showing? Yes. So um, uh, we have up on our website, you go to uh, vinylnationfilm.com. Right from the front page, you'll see a little button that says where to watch, and you can click on that, and that'll show you all of our partners all across the country um, that will be selling tickets starting on Friday, August 28th. Um, so can't buy tickets just yet, but uh, starting on, on this Friday, uh, people will be able to they'll go to our website. We'll actually have the links up for all of those partners that we're working with. And so you can click the link. It'll take them straight to a page that they can buy a ticket, and it'll be very clear on that ticket page, you know, the name of the record store, if it's Mills Record Company Presents Vinyl Nation, or the name of the theater um, that's, you know, that's presenting the film. And so that way they know that um, 50% of the proceeds from their ticket purchase is going to go back to that partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we're really excited to work with them. And then um, as we continue with this release, we're going to be having a series of virtual town halls uh, with our partners all over the country. Um, and uh, we're going to get that up as well by the end of this week. So people will be able to check out where they can, uh, after they watch the movie, they can join their community in a, in a town hall Q&A with Kevin and myself. Well, thank you for contributing this fine documentary, Vinyl Nation, uh, to the vinyl community. And I think, uh, you know, it shows that it's not like that newscaster said in, in the film where he compared vinyl to the to the going by way of the drive-in movie. <laughs> Obviously, it's not going to happen. Um, and God, even drive-ins are starting to come back. So um, thank you very much. And... Uh, and I hope you, you know, come back and keep keep in touch with Goldmine. Tell tell us how things are going, and hopefully you can report on also how this affected. Um, maybe you could do an add on or something. How this has affected mm-hmm. uh, the pandemic has affected record stores and record collectors and record shows. I think that needs to be covered too. There's a void there. Yeah, we're hoping to get to uh, I think in our, our town halls as well. Great. Yes. Um, but Pat, uh, before we go, this has been excellent. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. For Thanks so much, much. Appreciate Pat. it. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Thanks, Kevin. Thank I really appreciate it. Bye now. Appreciate yeah. it. Have a good one. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Christopher. This is Pat Prince, editor of Goldmine Magazine. Once again, if you're unfamiliar with Goldmine, it is has been the music collector's magazine since 1974. Our website is goldminemag.com. You can get exclusive content there as well. Also, you can enter contests and get a percentage off the subscription price. And you can find Goldmine magazine on the newsstand at select Barnes & Noble, Books A Million stores, and your independent record store. Okay, this is Pat Prince signing off. We'll see you next time on the Goldmine Podcast. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. 
You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 